Welcome to the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward, a podcast looking at legislation as it passes through Iraqtas Air in our National Parliament. Okay, well, welcome to episode 13 of the Irish Legislation Podcast. And this week, we're talking about the Criminal Procedure Bill 2021, which has been through Dáil Éireann and is starting the process through the Shannad um, this coming week uh, on the 19th of April with second stage in the Shannad. And it's a government-sponsored bill. And I'm joined by criminal barrister and former chair of the Irish Criminal Bar Association, Jane McGowan BL, who is a practicing criminal barrister and is going to talk to us about the bill. Jane, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Barry. Um, Jane, this is obviously, I suppose, a technical bill that deals with, as it suggests, a criminal procedure. And just as somebody who is well used to the trial procedure, I wonder if you could take listeners through kind of how a trial works with a jury and, and, and what are the processes that happen before the trial starts? Of course. Well, Barry, many of your listeners will no doubt have seen in the media that there can be often complaints about delays in trials and getting investigations off the ground by the guards. And that is true. So in essence, every complaint starts in the district court. And if it's a serious complaint or a serious offence, it is ultimately moved through the district court and to the circuit court. And that can take in and around six to nine months, depending on what the offence is, and perhaps even in some extreme cases, a little bit longer. Then the matter is returned to the circuit court. And at that point in time, at the first mention and soon thereafter, the accused will give an indication as to whether or not he or she intends to plead guilty or not guilty. And if they elect for a trial date, and if they uh, enter a not guilty plea, I suppose at that point, the matter will then go back uh, for a number of months, if not years, um, in order to get their trial date. So what this bill, as I understand it, is currently framed, is trying to do is to use the time between the trial uh, date and the not guilty indication um, and to use that time to iron out any issues that might otherwise arise um, and to try and expedite matters. And that can only be a good thing. Yeah, and you mentioned there the delays that sometimes occur between the time the person pleads not guilty and the time they get to to go before a jury, as it were. What's what is that delay at the moment? You know, um, it's quite stark with especially now with the effects of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But I'm aware that trial dates in the Central Criminal Court are 2023 and well into 2023, and I think a similar timescale for Dublin Circuit Court. So a person who pleads not guilty to a charge in the circuit court today is looking at waiting two years, really, before they get to, to face the, the trial, as it were. That's right, yeah. And are those people on bail or in jail? It's both, Barry. Both prisoners in custody and at liberty are awaiting their trials for up to two years. How's this bill going to change things? There are two main um amendments that the minister is seeking to bring in. The first is in respect of preliminary trial hearings, and then the second is in relation to uh, transcripts and what the jury received during the trial. But dealing with the preliminary trial hearing issue, this now is a focused endeavour. It's a regulated matter. It's now a formal stage that will be brought in whereby disclosure issues, and by that I mean if there is any outstanding evidence or pieces of information that the defence should know, they will be litigated in, adv in advance of the jury um, trial and also in respect of other issues that might arise in respect of complainants or injured parties. Well, can you give us an example of what some of those issues might be? So take uh, rape trials, for example. There is a provision 
called Section 19A, whereby uh, the defence may seek the disclosure of counselling records from the complainant. And Section 19A provides for a preliminary trial hearing on that issue itself. And that would mean that the defence moved their application saying that they should receive the counselling records because it's relevant to the prosecution and it may be something that is relevant to the issues at trial. The prosecution will have their say in respect of matters, but most importantly, the complainant is afforded legal representation and she or he is allowed to be heard on the issue and whether or not the, their records should be disclosed. So all of those matters get to be heard in advance of the trial. So not only is there certainty for the accused as to what evidence will or won't be tendered against him, but also the complainant is better served insofar as they understand uh, what may be opened at trial against them and they have enough time to digest it, Barry, rather than I'm all of this arising as the trial uh, progresses. Well, you're saying as it arising as the trial progresses. So how does it happen at the moment before this bill becomes law? Well, 19As have uh, paved the way for these preliminary trial hearings, but there are other issues that arise in respect of, again, using the example of rape trials, um, as matters arise in the trial itself. So take again the example of cross-examining a complainant on their previous sexual history. That is something that happens as the trial progresses. Um, and that, again, is provided for in law that the defence can move an application to cross-examine the complainant on previous sexual history if it is relevant to the issues at trial. What this bill will do is stop it from happening during the trial or stop it from happening um, at the outset of the trial and will now move it to being a, a pertinent issue well in advance of the trial that the lawyers have adequate time and notice to ventilate the matters before a judge and again that the complainant is represented can be heard on the issue in the absence of the jury and can have enough time to digest the potential cross-examination uh, cross on previous sexual history well in advance of the trial going before the jury. And why can't that happen now? As matters stand in law, taking the, the example that I've given you on cross-examining on previous sexual history, the law is that the matter uh, must be determined at the earliest part of the trial. Now, this proposed amendment will open matters up for interpretation to allow this to become part of a preliminary trial hearing, because now it's extending the trial process and the definition of the trial process, and it's extending the issues that may be um, may be ventilated outside of the jury process and allowing lawyers to do uh, trial work outside of the ordinary interpretation of the jury trial. Because previously, essentially, it had to be the trial judge who decided on both. And if you did them at great remove, you wouldn't be guaranteed to have the same person. Isn't that right? That's it, exactly. So um, is, is this something, are, are practitioners welcoming this or how do you feel about it? Very much so. Um, I don't think that there's any great opposition from solicitors or barristers. I think everyone um, is in favour of this move. It's something that has been attempted, as I suggested, over the years um, and for various reasons, it hasn't worked to great success. But now that this is placed on statutory footing and will be brought in as a matter of law, it's something that uh, postmarks and I suppose marks out the various 
processes that the checks and balances that have to be engaged in uh, by lawyers in advance of the trial. Um, so the other aspects of the bill you were referring to, the provision of information to the jury that's in part three of the bill, how do you feel about that or what is involved there? Uh, that's a trickier one, Barry. So as matters stand, your listeners will be aware from jury service themselves or from friends and family members who may have served as jurors. They are brought in and their job and their role in the trial process is to adjudicate on the facts. And that means the very important role of the juror is to listen to the evidence and also to interpret the credibility of the witnesses. And they can do that by looking at their body language, listening to what they say. And really, they're bringing their common, ordinary experience to matters and taking matters from the remove of the lawyers and all of the the legal fashion. The idea of providing transcripts to juries could be a double-edged sword. It can certainly help juries if technical evidence is being given, where they might want to refer back to evidence from doctors or scientists or phone technicians, things that might not be readily um, understandable or comprehensible, and they might need to check things out. And that's fine. There's, There's no prejudice that could potentially arise. That seems to be uh, common sense. That seems to make sense. The difficulty with the other provisions in this section is that it also allows for the transcript of opening statement, closing speeches, and various other uh, parts of the trial to be given to the jury. That can be problematic because the opening speech or the closing speech of the lawyers isn't evidence. It's the narrative and the story that lawyers dress up in respect of the evidence. And it's important that the jury don't be too uh, consumed by the story that's offered by the lawyers, but rather than the evidence, rather the evidence itself. And that I think is going to have to perhaps be construed more strictly It's a matter, ultimately, I'm sure that the residual discretion in the bill leaves it with the judge, um, ultimately, to make the call as to whether or not those transcripts should be made available. But at first blush, that would appear that would appear to be a little bit trickier and a little bit more problematic. Mm -hmm. Uh, As you're saying, like the judge still has the the decision to make as to whether those transcripts are, are given to the jury. But you mentioned opening and closing statements. Can you just tell the listeners who makes an opening statement? So an opening speech is by the prosecutor. So the prosecuting barrister uh, gets up and they tell the jury what they think the evidence will be, what they think the case against the accused uh, will be. And it's couched in terms of what the evidence in the uh, book of evidence or the the coupling of statements is. None of that is actual evidence. And the jury, in essence, are being given a flavour and a background to what they can expect. But what's most important is what actually happens in the witness box. And if those witnesses and if that evidence is actually brought out in the course of the trial. And in terms of closing speeches, then they're made by both sides. That's right. And again, you can imagine, and we've all seen the Netflix series and we've, uh, during lockdown in particular, I'm sure we're all more, um, more knowledgeable about lawyers and closing speeches. But in essence, it's the summary of the trial and both sides are putting forward their best version of the evidence and trying to persuade the jury to interpret the evidence in their, um, in their way. Uh, would that not be helpful to a jury as they go out to consider their verdict? Would, they, would it not be helpful to have those respective maps that are offered by the lawyers in the case? 
Well, not only do you have the closing speeches, you then have a third speech from the judge, and that is called the judge's charge. And the judge is the uh, neutral arbiter between the two lawyers. He is the one that is summarizing the evidence, I suppose, in the cold interpretation. So perhaps the judge's charge is most helpful for it to go before the jury, that they get the uh, unadulterated version of the evidence and that they can come to their own conclusion rather than being persuaded um, by the the waxing lyrics of whichever lawyer they prefer. But would it be unusual for juries to get, say, transcripts of the evidence if it was a particularly key witness in a case and they've given maybe very detailed evidence? Can juries not access that evidence now? It, it depends, Barry, on the circumstances. I know that there are times when the judge will allow for the, the audio recording of the evidence to be replayed um, and that they will uh, get the flavour and the tenor back of the evidence and it will remind them of the evidence that was actually given. In some ways, I think this probably extends the judge's discretion and gives them a greater power to, to clarify things for the jury. Um, so in part four, then, there's a number of other kind of ancillary amendments to criminal procedure to various acts over the years. Um, how do you feel about the, the various amendments that are made in sections 13 to 18? Or any comments on them? There, uh, there's a few, Barry. So um, I know section 18 of the bill proposes to extend the uh, period, the 28-day period uh, for service of the defence's expert witness reports. Uh, that extends it from 10 days to now 28 days. And um, that would appear to be in great favour to the prosecution that they have extra time to review this matter. Um, and it is yet to be seen how that will ultimately play out, but that would appear uh, to be somewhat unnecessary, I'd suggest, at this point in time. There hasn't yeah. really been any clamour from it uh, from prosecutors to receive the, the reports with any greater notice. At the moment, for, for listeners, there's an obligation on the prosecution to disclose everything they're going to rely on in the course of a trial, and in fact, anything any evidence they've gathered in advance of a trial. So if they have an expert report saying A, B, or C, they have to give it to the defence so the defence can examine that. And I think at the moment, the defence can kind of get a, a, a rebutting or a contradictory report from their own expert, but they only have to give the, the prosecution 10 days' notice, and this is bringing that out to 28 days. Do you think the practitioners will be happy with that, or how will that go down? I'm sure the prosecutors will only be delighted um, with the extra time. But again, you, you hit on a point there, Barry. It's uh, the defence witnesses being brought in almost as a rebuttal to the prosecution's evidence. You have to remember the prosecution is the, the might of the state. They have the guardie, they have all of the witnesses um, at their disposal and really without any monetary or budgetary um, issues. The defence are somewhat on the back foot in that they are the lesser party Whilst there is legal aid that ordinarily covers and extends to expert witnesses and the provision of such reports, um, they are still not the might and the arm of the state. And I think the 10 days uh, limit that had previously or that is in force um, as matters stand, I think that that probably meets the interests of both parties and it's the correct balance between matters. Um, I know that there are other amendments um, within the bill, and I'm aware, Barry, in fact, that you have your own bill um, that's proposed in respect of other various amendments. And I think that that uh, will bring some sharp focus into to matters as well. Um, thanks very much, Jane. Um, in terms of, I know that this week you were talking about um, the proposal in the Justice Plan and the government's programme for government about 
the possibility of a public defender's office and we will be speaking to Justice Minister Helen McEntee in, in a minute. But um, how do you feel about the possibility of a public defender's office? Um, I think it would, uh, it's unnecessary. I think it's not value for money. I don't think it's necessary um, by way of purpose, principle or price. As matters stand, the legal aid uh, budget is somewhere between two and three percent of the overall justice expenditure. And that is um, significantly lower than our counterparts in Northern Ireland, England and Wales and Scotland. It's been shown looking at other public defender systems, particularly your listeners will no doubt be aware of the system in America, that that is more ineffective. Um, It is costly, it is more expensive, and it also has its own slew of issues arising from it being a state-funded system and indeed a state entity itself. So as matters stand, uh, the service that's provided, I would suggest, is good value for money. Um, And I don't think that there's any real necessity to change uh, into a public defender system. Um, You're saying that it's it's going to be more expensive, but how can it possibly be more expensive if you have a fixed number of lawyers who are on staff and are delivering the service for a fixed fee? Is that not going to be cheaper for the state? No, and you might think so um, at first instance, but the the government and various governments before have looked at this. In 1981, they published the Tormey Report. In 1999, they, uh, in 1999, they also had review of the Criminal Legal Aid Review uh, Committee. And then also in 2018, the department conducted a comparison of the spending review in respect of legal aid between Ireland and and other countries. And on each and every occasion, when you balance the books, the current legal aid scheme is cheaper than a public defender uh, system. And I can only imagine that that will, uh, the reason for that is because you have otherwise state employees who are pensionable, who are entitled to sick pay and all of the other employment rights that arise, where in the current legal aid scheme, they are self-employed practitioners who do not enjoy those rights and entitlements. And I presume one can only suggest that that is where there is significant um, cost difference. Because I think probably a lot of people don't realise barristers are all self-employed, so there's no obligation to them if, if, as you say, they become sick or indeed pregnant for that matter. Um, And people, the the state doesn't have to pay them during that time, so if they're not working, they're not making money. Um, But in the media this week, we've had a lot of discussion about legal aid, the cost of it, uh, which, as you say, is is good compared to, to the comparable jurisdictions. But one of the comments I heard on radio recently was that we we shouldn't keep providing legal aid for people who keep offending. Uh, What would you say to that? Um, I am sure and I can understand and appreciate uh, the frustrated law-abiding public who uh, hear of repeat offenders. Nevertheless, we live in a democratic society where we have the rule of law and the rule of order and human rights. And that includes affording adequate representation to every citizen. Uh, We certainly don't blacklist individuals because of uh, offending behaviour insofar as they would be punished with uh, out receiving legal aid. Um, I understand the frustrations, but it's a slippery slope if we were to start uh, picking and choosing who would be entitled to adequate representation. 
Okay, that's great. Uh, Jane McGowan, Barrister at Law and former chair of the Irish Criminal Bar Association. Thanks very much for your insight and your time and uh, what you've had to say about the bill. Thanks, Barry. Okay, well, I'm joined now by Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, TD for Me East. Helen, thanks very much for joining us. Good afternoon, Barry. Hi. And Helen, um, in terms of the Criminal Procedure Bill, can you just outline what the main reason behind this bill is? The Criminal Procedure Bill, um, it's something that has been called on for a long time, and that is the introduction of preliminary trial hearings. And for me, there's two clear objectives to introducing preliminary trial hearings. Firstly, that we would reduce delays um, in our court system, and and I suppose there are many benefits to that, and I'll maybe outline them, but also that we would have a more efficient and effective um, process in and running of of these criminal trials. Um, I suppose one area that I have particularly prioritised as Minister for Justice is combating domestic, sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, and something that we've seen uh, time and time again is where uh, perhaps a trial uh, for rape has started. Um, there are issues that arise throughout the trial, whether it's admissibility of evidence, whether it's questioning a, a victim about their prior sexual history or other issues that might arise where a jury has to be sent away. Um, the trial stopping and starting, it can be very difficult, it can be very traumatic in particular for the victim, but also has an impact on the defendant and everybody who's involved in the trial, including the jurors. So preliminary trial hearings will allow a judge to decide what issues can be dealt with in the pre-trial. It means that those issues will be dealt with. So when a trial starts, it won't stop and start. Juries won't be sworn in and sent away. Uh, So again, the impact that that will have positively on the victim, defendant, everybody involved, but also the jurors, the running of the court system and, and the, the financial benefits as well as, as everything else, I, I think, will, will, will be really positive. Yeah, we spoke earlier to Jane McGowan, who's a practising criminal barrister. She also raised this issue, of particularly of sexual assault and rape trials. And I think there, there, I suppose there are two aspects she was talking about. One was the jury experience, but also the fact that if these changes take place, it'll be much easier for a complainant coming to court. She will know, or in the odd case, he will know what they have to face when they come to trial. So it'll improve things in that respect. Absolutely. And and in other areas as well, if, you know, if, if it is, say, questioning of previous sexual history, um, we've often seen or, or what, what has been relayed to me is that because this happens very quickly in the middle of a trial, there isn't the time to, to have uh, the right counsel there to support the victim as they go through this process. Um, but what will happen now is the judge will obviously decide that this can be discussed at a preliminary trial hearing. There will be time then to identify who is the right person to support the victim in going through their questioning and that same person then can support them going through the the main trial itself. Um, But obviously as well it it prepares them for um, what might be happening in the trial itself and and, um, it can be often very traumatic for somebody to, to, to know that a trial is starting um, I suppose, to, to gear themselves up, to be prepared for it to have to stop and start a number of times. So th- there's a lot of benefits. And, and then obviously um, th- there are other situations. And today I'm, I'm publishing the uh, implementation plan for the Hamilton report, which mm-hmm. is specifically looking at economic crime and corruption. And one of the recommendations in his report is that we would introduce preliminary trial hearings to deal with some of the issues around evidence that are arising in these type of cases as well. So uh, there are many benefits to it. Um, obviously, uh, I hope to have it introduced as soon as possible. We're going through the second stages in the, the Shannon today. Uh, and if we can finalise it next week, it will obviously then go to the president for signing and, and we'll work with the court service to make sure that these measures can be put in place as, as quickly as possible. And the situation in the bill is that the pre-trial 
or preliminary trial hearing has to be requested, isn't that right, by one one of the parties to the trial, either the prosecution or the defence? It can be requested by either and, and a judge can then decide, obviously, whether or not that can be the case. Um, there are, you know, various different situations or scenarios or orders that can be requested and uh, whether it's a, a, a trial where the sentence is a maximum of 10 years or more, so life sentences um, or else other types of, of scenarios, as I've said, if it's admissibility of evidence, if it's questioning prior sexual history or, or, or many other uh, that can be uh, identified and, and um, put forward by the, the relevant minister in, in the legislation. Um, so it's, it's you know, it, it's it's something that can be requested not just by the defendant, but by the prosecution as well. Mm-hmm. So, so I suppose the main purpose really is to streamline the trial process to make it faster, more efficient and therefore more effective, both for uh, defendants and for complainants. Absolutely. And and also the court service so that they can obviously plan ahead. Um, we're in a very difficult period with COVID-19 over the last year we've, where we've had a lot of trials have had to 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 be paused. Um, we're going to have a situation now, hopefully over the summer, where things start to ease up. And we want to make sure that our criminal trials can run as smoothly as possible. And so making sure that any of the, the issues that might uh, arise during a trial where a jury who has already been sworn in has to be sent away, that those issues can be dealt with. Um, you know, and, and as I've said, particularly looking at domestic and sexual violence, the, the challenges that that creates for victims and, and I suppose the the, the the mental impact that it has as well is, is quite significant. So I'm, I'm really pleased to have the full support, I have to say, of all members of the houses, of all parties and none in progressing this. And that's why we've really been able to, to do so as quickly as possible. Okay. So, so judging what you were saying there on the timetable, um, we, it's already been through the doll, starting in the Shannon, the second stage today, committee stage, you think next week. So we could see this bill in operation certainly in early May. Well, we could certainly see this bill um, through all stages, sent to the president for signing, obviously with anything like this. And and this is quite a significant change, I think, for the courts. Um, It will take a period of time to to have this established and up and running. So I'm already engaged with the court service to identify what kind of a time frame. So if it's not up and running in this term, I would really hope that in the start of the new term uh, that we would see these up and running. Uh, now, Minister, you were saying that it's about streamlining trials, but there is a provision, for example, to, for different parties to appeal against a, pre, a preliminary trial decision. There is. I, for most of us, um, the, the decision to appeal will have to happen after the, the trial itself takes place. But there is a provision there, particularly for the, the, the defence, if there is a piece of evidence that, say, would prevent the trial actually from going ahead. And if this evidence is not admissible, um, then they can request that appeal in the preliminary trial hearing stage. So, again, this is all about streamlining it, but also making sure that uh, justice is served and and that in particular, if uh, a trial is not going to be able to proceed because of a particular piece of evidence not being admissible and being absolutely crucial to the prosecution's overall case, um, then that can be decided before a trial actually starts. Otherwise, any of the the appeals that would take place generally will happen later on um, at the end of the overall trial. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things we often forget from an administrative and, and practice point of view is the experience that jurors have, because obviously citizens give up their time to go in. And at the moment, because of what are called voir dire applications, where 
legal argument is heard of the absence of the jury, they will often spend days um, sometimes sitting in a room waiting for those legal arguments to conclude, which is very frustrating. It is. And you need to make sure that when somebody is called for jury duty, that they're happy and willing and, and want to accept. And, and, you know, the vast majority of people are. But this is a huge drain and strain on their time. You know, you have people who have their own business who who maybe aren't able to take that time off work, but obviously uh, they, they want to fulfill their duty to the state and, and uh, take part. So this would, uh, I hope, um, encourage more people to, to, to think positively of the, the work that they're doing and, and in accepting their, their duty as jurors um, because they know that they're not going to be left sitting in a room for days on end. They know that the trial is not going to be stopped and started a number of times and hopefully they will have an idea of how long a trial will last. I mean, that's for me a, a point I'd love to get to, whether it's a civil or a criminal hearings, that we have you know a clear time frame of how long these should last and, and that's not just positive for jurors, but it's positive, I think, for everybody going through the, yeah. the legal system as well. Thanks very much for joining us, Minister. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward. You can get me on Twitter at Barry M. Ward. Don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss any of the episodes as they come up on a weekly basis while the Oireachtas is sitting.